Praise God for the never-ending mercy that we experience because of our union with Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, it is a joy to be back together here this morning as we turn our attention once again to the study of God's Word from the book of Joshua. So I would encourage you, if you have your Bibles with you, open up this morning to Joshua chapter 9. Joshua 9 is where we're going to set our hearts to study and meditate this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we have two very fine-looking men who are going to work their way to the back. Just throw your hand up and they'll make sure that you get one so you can follow along with us this morning. Well, as I mentioned, we continue our journey here uh, through the book of Joshua, and we've begun to see a little bit of the up and down pattern of what it looks like to follow God by faith. Uh, Over the last several weeks, we've seen a little bit of what we would call the roller coaster experience of the Israelites, right? Great success in chapter 6 at Jericho, only to experience great failure and defeat at the hands of the small city of Ai in chapter 7. Uh, realized that that was due to the sin of a man named Achan, and once they dealt with that sin, we see great success then in chapter 8. We see the covenant renewal at the end of that, and Israel is living large here by the time we get to chapter 9. By the time we get to these verses, uh, the drama of war is turned down for a bit, but the challenge of faith, uh, that is turned up. And the Israelites are faced here with a dilemma caused by a particular people group. And the question at the forefront of this chapter is, what will they do and how will they decide? I believe that as we look at this chapter together, we're going to see that this is a very practical passage for those who seek to follow God by faith. And so let's let the the text do a little bit of the uh, speaking for us here this morning. I'm going to invite you to stand in honor of the public reading of God's Word. And we're going to read the first 15 verses of this chapter together and better understand what it is that the Israelites are facing here in chapter 9. Word of God reads here, As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland and all along the coast of the great sea toward the Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Joshua, what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country. So now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? And they said to Joshua, We are your servants. Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? Uh, they said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and how all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lives in Ashroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now and make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day that we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. 
These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. These garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. This is where we're going to stop for this morning in our readings. You may be seated and let's ask for the Lord to bless our study together as we look at this chapter. And Father, we do now just ask for your kindness on us. Uh, it would be my prayer that we would see ourselves in this story, see the, the tendency and the propensity we have, Lord, to allow our own self-sufficiency and self-reliance to stand in the way of what it looks like to live dependently upon you. Uh, so we pray that you would bless the, the meditation of your word now as we, we come to it. May the meditations of our hearts and may the words of my mouth be pleasing and honorable to you. We would ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Tyson reminded us here at the beginning of service, we are officially in the month of October now. Hard to believe, right? 2023 is going by very quickly. But the fact that we are in the month of October means that we are in the month of Halloween, which means by the final day of this month, 30 days from now, you are going to have all kinds of visitors, hopefully just children, coming to your doorsteps dressed in all kinds of costumes and disguises. Everything from athletes to cheerleaders, uh, from Jedi masters to fairy tale princesses, from heroes on the big screen to heroes in real life. Uh, in fact, if you are wanting to know what to expect in terms of the most popular costumes that should be coming your way this year, uh, according to recent polls, you should see a lot of Barbies, you should see a lot of Little Mermaids. And a lot of Taylor Swifts, which I must add, that is the second reference to Taylor Swift in a sermon this calendar year. So, take that for what it's worth. I don't anticipate that you will see me dressed up as any of these characters, but when they show up at your door, you have been forewarned. Has anyone in recent years ever had somebody show up dressed as a, a worn out, weary traveler from a distant land? I would venture to, to guess not, right? And yet that is certainly what we have on display here in chapter 9 of Joshua, where we find perhaps the first batch of trick-or-treaters in the Bible. A group that literally dresses up in costume, assumes a false identity to be able to go to another place to get what they want. They play the trick so that they will get not a treat, but a treaty. And I think that as we look at this story this morning, I'm going to propose to you that this passage is going to show us that God's people are led astray when they fail to depend on him. There is a tendency for God's people to be led astray when they are living with a lack of dependence upon him or you want to say it another way, a failure to depend on God is a recipe for failure. To fail to depend on God is a recipe for further and even greater failure. The success of the Gibeonite deception had nothing to do with how good their costumes were, though they had some pretty good costumes. 
The success of the Gibeonite deception had nothing to do with their awesome provisions, their props, their words, the speech that they used, though all of that was very impressive. Rather, their success was ultimately due to Israel's failure. And it was a failure that we see there in verse 14 that should read as a dagger to us their failure to seek counsel from the Lord. The Israelites were tricked into a treaty because they fell into the trap of pride, presumption, and self-sufficiency. Which I don't need to remind you is a dangerous trap even for God's people still today. So let's examine their failure a little bit closer this morning and see what we can learn from their mistakes. Let's look at the story in two parts, and we'll focus our first uh, uh, attention here on the nature of Gibeon's trickery in verses 1 through 15, which we just read. And we find in these verses, the first six verses here, the Gibeonites hatching the plan. And we find them hatching the plan here. And you may have noticed the opening verses read a little bit different to us from past uh, passages in the book of Joshua. Because we're starting to see that things are getting a little bit more challenging for the Israelites than they were at the beginning. In fact, if you remember back in chapter 5, the people of the land, once they knew the Israelites were coming, do you remember the original language? It was saying that their hearts melted at the thought of the Israelites coming. And now by chapter 9, we see that the people of the land are not so easily intimidated. In fact, they are uniting to come against Israel all the harder. And somehow the Canaanites are no longer intimidated by the Israelites. There's a lot of different reasons for that, but I think that it's possible that word of Israel's defeat at lowly Ai back in chapter 7 has something to do with that. In the sports world, we would say that this is a team that has proven themselves beatable. A team that everybody once thought was invincible and undefeatable is actually someone who can be taken down. And so here we see that these armies of the land are no longer scared, but instead they are gunning for the Israelites, actually uniting with one another, because what is a greater uniter than having a common enemy? That is except for one group. And we read about them at the beginning of verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they responded differently, didn't they? They respond in verse 4 with cunning, with slyness, with craftiness. Now, who are these Gibeonites, by the way? Well, verse 7 actually gives us a little bit of a, a clue by the, the narrator it tells us later on that the men of Israel said to the Hivites. You say, well, I thought they were talking to the Gibeonites. Well, he puts that in there. To, the narrator puts that in there to help us understand that the people of Gibeon were actually a subgroup within uh, the grouping of the Hivites. And that's important because we learned that the Hivites were amongst the people that Israel was supposed to eliminate from the land, not keep around. So that's a very important detail. And we see that the Gibeonites here in verse 4, they act with cunning, a word that means that they were sly, they were crafty, and indeed, they were pretty crafty. They get to work. They pull out their sewing kits. They pull out their easy-bake ovens, and they get to work. 
They start drafting up a costume and an identity of all these worn out materials. They get the worst of the, the food that they can possibly gather up, the most uh, old and the most expiring of food, you will. Why? Because verse 6, they want to give the impression that they were travelers from a faraway land rather than inhabitants of the land. Now, if there's one thing that we can learn about the Gibeonites from this story, it is that they excelled at one skill, and that was acting. They give an Oscar-worthy performance here, very persuasive in their role. But what was the motivation for it? Well, according to verse 6, they come seeking a covenant. They come seeking a treaty with the people of Israel. A covenant was simply a lasting promise that was established between two parties. It was a promise of peace, one that said that they could dwell together without hostility, but one of a mutuality together. And that's brilliant on the part of Gibeon because they somehow knew Israelite law. We don't know how, but somehow they knew that this was something the Israelites could be tricked into. Because we know according to Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 10 through 11, talk about how when the Israelites uh, go to a foreign place, they could offer terms of peace to those individuals. Uh, They could uh, allow them to to dwell amongst them and to to be put to service for their, their own benefits. But we learn a few verses later in verses 16 to 18 that if they are inhabitants of, inhabitants of the land of Canaan, the land that they are being given, they don't get that kind of deal. These are the people that they are called to drive out of the land, to destroy completely. We've talked about that in recent weeks. So if they were outside the land, that's one thing. But if they were from the inside the land, they had to be removed. So the Gibeonites knew the only way to pull this off was to present themselves as if they were from outside the lands. And so the Gibeonites, knowing what is at stake, devise this masterful plan, and they take on the old adage, if you can't beat them, what? Join them. And they play their own version of trick-or-treat with the Israelites, and they play their trick in hopes of getting a treaty in return. And that brings us to verses 7 to 14, where we see the Gibeonites deceiving the target, deceiving the target here. Initially, the Israelites are appropriately suspicious of these visitors. We see that in verse 7, right? They they even say to them, how do we know who you are, right? Uh, Perhaps you are from among the, the people in this land, in this country. And this is summed up in Joshua's question in verse 8. Who are you? Where do you come from? And they pull out all the stops here. It's actually really brilliant. If you read back through here, in verses 9 and 10, they pull out all this spiritual flattery. We come because of the the great name of your God and all that he's done in Egypt and all that he's done to all these foreign kings. We've seen his power, his mighty works. He is God worthy to be worshipped, right? And then they transition to from spiritual flattery to physical sympathy. And they say, we've come on such a long journey. Look at all of our clothes. Look how worn down they are. Look at our bread. It was so warm and fluffy when we first left, and now it's just dry and crumbly. You just hear the tears, right? Cue the Sarah McLaughlin music. I mean, they, they could not have played their part any better. But you know what? 
doesn't matter how good you play your part when you have the wisdom of God on your side, right? And so the Israelites naturally do what they should do, right? They, they ask the Lord and the Lord in return reveals who these people are and they get rid of these people and a story, right? Well, that's what should have happened. That's what should have taken place. But verse 14 says that the men took some of their provisions, meaning they, they took some of the, the, the materials that they brought with them, they investigated them, they looked at them, they considered everything, and they made their decision. But look at the second half of verse 14. But they did not ask counsel of the Lord. And again, that verse should read like a dagger. What feels like it should have been the most obvious thing has quickly become the most overlooked thing. And as such, the Israelites are fully captured by the deception of this group of Gibeonites, which leads to verse 15 where we see them sealing the deal. After Joshua and the leaders weigh the evidence and they hear all the verbal testimony, they come to their verdict and they say, absolutely. We can do this. And they enter into a treaty, a covenant, a peace with these supposed foreigners, one that will allow them to dwell in the land without any threat of further destruction. The Gibeonites came, they sought, they deceived, and they conquered. They bested the Israelites. And got exactly what they wanted and as such preserved the lives of themselves as well as their future descendants for generations to come. All of this coming on the heels of Israel's great success in chapter 8. I mean, honestly, at the end of verse 15, I think the Israelites are feeling pretty good about themselves. After all, they just did a noble thing by caring for this traveling group of wanderers who wanted to worship the one true God, supposedly. I mean, they, they, they have to be feeling pretty good about themselves, right? But here's where we see things turn very quickly in this story when we consider the fallout of Israel's treaty in verses 16 to 27. And it begins with them in verses 16 and 17 realizing their mistake. Realizing their mistake. Look at verse 16. At the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors, that they lived among them. I mean, within a few days, the Israelites gained further intel that real, reveals that they, a very shocking reality, as you can imagine, to them. These people were already residents of Canaan. They were neighbors to them. And if to add further insult and emphasis, the writer includes in verse 16 that these were the very people that they had made a covenant with. A promise that they could not break. They come to the realization that they have made a terrible and irreversible mistake. And so to better understand the reason for their deception, we find the Israelites now in the position of traveler, right? They get on their transportation. They go to the cities of Gibeon to better understand what in the world just happened. In verse 17, they go on a road trip to these towns for a face-to-face -face meeting and yet we do not find them attacking the Gibeonites as they originally should have. But instead, we see them keeping their promise. Verse 18, 
But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The Israelite leaders stay true to their word, which they gave in the name of Yahweh, their God, right? They, 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 they made a promise to these people. So rather than destroy them, they stay true to their word. They keep their promise. But that doesn't sit well with the people, does it? Because we see at the end of verse 18 there that the congregation murmured against the leaders. That word murmured is really that word for complain. It's the same word that's used time and time again in the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers to describe the people of Israel complaining in the wilderness. We've mentioned before how Joshua is kind of like a new type of Moses. How often did the people complain to Moses in the wilderness? We see Joshua now taking on that role. It's a reminder to us that the honeymoon phase of Joshua's leadership is now over. It's not all a bed of roses for him. Things were going far too well, and things have now changed. But Joshua and the leaders understood that attacking the Gibeonites is not an option at this point. Yes, they messed up, but they would only compound their mistake by adding further harm to it. Look at verse 20. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us. They knew that by actually attacking these people, by going back on their word, God's wrath would be even more vindictive on them for going back on their word. They understood that you cannot make a mis this mistake worse by adding even more mistakes to it. The principle for us, understanding that you don't make sin worse by compounding the sin. The deal has been done. They are now stuck in an unbreakable promise of peace with these people. And so the Israelites must devise a plan for how they are going to coexist with these new partners in the land. Verse 21, the leader said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leader said of them. Starts to see here what this new relationship with these people look like. And that brings us to those final verses, verses 22 to 27, where we see the Israelites, because of this treaty, ultimately delivering their enemies. Because these people are technically no longer enemies, but allies to them. The unique new relationship that exists between these two groups. And so what do the Israelite leaders do? They put them to work. Verse 21, verse 23, verse 27 show that they put them to work uh, specifically in the service to the Israelites, but in particular to their service to the worship of Yahweh. Cutters of wood and drawers of water for uh, the sanctuary, for the, uh, for the altar of the Lord. In his conversation with the Gibeonites here in verses 22 and 23, Joshua seeks to understand why they did this deceptive act. Why in the world would they do such a thing? And actually, he says it's, it's brought a curse upon them, this curse of labor that they now have to be subject to the Israelites. It's a reasonable question, but verse 24 reveals how well the Gibeonites knew the Bible almost. Look at this. Verse 24, they answered Joshua because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. Hmm. It's their way of saying, 
Why did we do it? I mean, did we have a choice? It was either this or death. And the same way, they kind of acted like Rahab. There's some similarities, but still some very big differences. But how they responded to the fear of the Lord. Rahab's was more of a genuine love for the Lord of how she saw that this was the one true God and how she wanted to truly come on their side to be a part of what the Lord was doing there. Whereas the Gibeonites, we just see here, they're just trying to save their own necks. And who can blame them, right? Again, in verse 25, we see them accepting the terms that Joshua has set. Behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. And because they rightly understand (laughs) to do manual labor and live is a lot better than being attacked and dying. And so according to verse 26, the account ends with the stark reality that Israel's enemies are the very ones delivered as the chapter closes. Kind of an interesting story, isn't it, right? And kind of has a, an interesting backdrop as the curtain falls on this chapter and we're left to think to ourselves, okay, so what does this mean? What does this pertain to us in the Christian life? I want to look back through this chapter and give you a couple points to think about this morning, but the first point is this. Don't be surprised when testing comes on the heels of great success. Don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard when uh, spiritual testing comes on the heels of of great success. You're starting to hopefully see that, that roller coaster in Joshua of success, failure, success, failure. And after a great military victory in chapter 8, the Israelites have uh, this covenant renewal on top of the mountains at the end of chapter 8 there. They literally have a mountaintop worship experience. And it's great. But herein lies the potential danger of spiritual success. There's nothing wrong with having personal victories. There's nothing wrong with having spiritual highs. But this is where all God's people must be very careful because this so often proves to be the testing grounds for faith. In fact, that's why Proverbs 16, 18 says that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That if we're not careful and we think too highly of ourselves in light of our successes, there's a tendency for us to stumble and fall. That's why Paul picks up on this language in 1 Corinthians 10 where he reminds us to take heed, be warned, lest you yourself also fall. I don't think it's a surprise that so often throughout the Bible, the people who are being tested the most are typically the ones who have experienced the greatest spiritual success or the ones who are struggling the most with pride. And if you don't believe me, look at some of the scriptures, right? You think about a righteous man like Job and all the successes that he was having, and yet that was a testing grounds for his faith and his righteousness. Or if you look at somebody like a Peter who was so self-assured in his commitment to the Lord that he promised, I will never deny you, and then later that night denies him not once, not twice, but three times. So do not bask in any success that God may be so gracious to grant to you, but stay humble, watchful, and dependent at all times. Second, must be on guard for deception because deception is so often wrapped in spiritual packaging. 
If you look more closely at the Gibeonite deception, you will see that their deception oozed of spiritual flattery. They appealed to Israel's God, told of his reputation, marveled at his power. And so often God's people are led astray because they fail to see the truth underneath the spiritual coating and the facade that's created. This is a reminder that John tells us in 1 John 4 where we are called to test anything that gives the impression or is presented to us as spiritual. Because not everything that is called spiritual or called Christian is exactly that. And this is not a call for God's people to be a critical people, but it is a call to be a discerning people. To not be naive, to not be gullible or taken away. Right, Just because uh, something is on Christian music radio does not mean that it's in accordance with biblical truth. Just because somebody has a book that's in the Christian bookstore or in the Christian section of literature means that it's actually drawing you closer into the heart of the Lord. Not because any, uh, or not because any young man or young woman says that they are a Christian, means that you should date them, right? I've experienced this over the years, right? Well, they say that they're a Christian. They say that they love God or they say they at least believe that there is a God, right? Do not so easily be led astray. Be discerning because so often deception comes wrapped in spiritual packaging. Remember, Satan himself disguises himself as what? An angel of light. So be on guard. You must not neglect God's wisdom. You must seek it, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But the third thing I want us to see this morning is that presumption and self-sufficiency are stumbling blocks to faith. In fact, they stand in complete opposition to faith. Faith by nature is dependence, to depend on God for that which you cannot do on your own, which we know at its most essential roots is saving ourselves, right? None of us can do that on our own, but this also has practical application for everyday life and just general obedience and living out our faith in response to the Lord. That's why Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, which is on your cover verse this morning, reminds us that we need to trust in the Lord and not lean on our own understanding, The tendency too often is to operate in our own strength and to become self-reliant or presumptuous just like the Israelites in this chapter. And so when you read this chapter, you're you're almost tempted to think that the leaders are going to figure it out, right? They they ask the right questions. they're, They're skeptical in the beginning. And yet whose voice and whose presence is lacking the entire chapter? It's God's. In fact, let this sit with you here this morning. This is the first chapter in the entire book of Joshua where God's voice and God's presence is completely absent. First time in the whole book, God is silent. And I think that that's the point. I think that that's meant to draw our attention to what is severely lacking here in this chapter That Joshua and the leaders took matters into their own hand. Dale Ralph Davis says it this way. It was not that Joshua and the elders did not ask the right questions. Uh, They were suspicious at just the right points. It was not that they were sloppy in their investigation, but that they were alone in their decision. It wasn't that they didn't think, 
but that they didn't pray. Which is why I think, fourthly this morning, we need to understand that God's wisdom must be sought and not neglected. This is where the emphasis of this chapter lies. It reminds us of the major theme in Joshua of what it looks like to follow God's lead, not our own lead. To be a follower of God is to be dependent, not self-sufficient or self-reliant. And so we must be a people who seek God's wisdom at all times. That first and foremost comes from God's word. We're reminded that God's word is truth. It is the means of sanctification and growing in Christ's likeness. And so we should be a people who the very first question that comes to our mind in dilemmas and problems is the question of what does the Bible say to that? What would God have me learn from this? What does God's word say to this? I mean, think about that would save the Israelites in the story and how much that would save us in everyday life. So we seek first God's wisdom from his word, but secondly, from his throne because we're reminded in James 1.5 that if we lack wisdom, we should come to God. Hebrews 4.16 says that our great high priest is gracious to grant us what we need in time of need. So we cannot neglect the need to come before God's throne or to go to God's word, but then thirdly, we need to remember to go to God's people. That there is wisdom to be offered from God's people. That according to Proverbs 15.22, there is wisdom and abundance of counselors who are also submitted to God's word and are submitted to prayer. When all those things are working together, you have access to the full wisdom of God. Why would we want to neglect that? It's so essential to everything about who we are. But before you think that this chapter ends on such a a, a dark and depressing note, and you're left to think that this is a, a chapter all about failure, let this final point be one of hope for you this morning, that God can use our failures for his glory. It would be easy to see this as a complete failure on Israel's part, but where else were the Gibeonites forced to work but within close proximity to the worship of the one true God? Of all the places they could have been subjected to work, they are working in close proximity to the worship of the one true God. While Joshua proclaimed this to be a curse, we also get a hint of a redemptive element to this story. Consider what one author writes about this situation for the Gibeonites. He says this, They were hereby brought into a situation where they would naturally acquire knowledge of the true God and of his revealed will. That they were made to dwell in the courts of the Lord's house, were honored with the near access to him in the service of the sanctuary, and thus placed in circumstances eminently favorable to their spiritual and eternal interests. That's just like God, isn't it? And if we were to push the fast forward button on what we see with the Gibeonites, we would see later history showing that the Israelites were quick to defend them, that they were quick to come to their rescue. We also see later on in Nehemiah chapter 3 and 7, when the generations of Israelites are coming back into the land after they had been exiled for their disobedience, who do we see incorporated among the people of Israel? but the Gibeonites, that they were counted amongst the redeemed people who were returning to the land, counted among God's community of people. 
Centuries later, they are fully assimilated as those who have been brought into the family of God. No different than the way Rahab was considered amongst the people as well. I think this serves as a reminder to us that God is able to turn evil into good, that our God is one who works all things together for the good of those who love him and is able to do so for the glory of his name. After all, think about it. He turned the greatest evil in all of human history, the murder of his own son, into your greatest eternal good. That by believing in him, every single one of you can have the assurance of rescue and deliverance from God's wrath eternally. I don't know about you, but that's power and wisdom that is beyond anything else that we can imagine. That is the very God that we serve. And as such, we must not be a people who are led astray by deception, but a people who are known by how we depend on the God who both redeemed us and also sustains us in daily life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a marvelous God who does turn failure into glory. That, Lord, our our human mistakes can never upset or disrupt your eternal plans. And we're thankful for how we see that in Christ Jesus, Lord, how you turned the greatest evil in human history into our eternal good. And Lord, now as your, your people, as those who desire to, to walk by faith, we desire to walk dependently. We recognize that in a world like ours, there's a, a tendency towards independence and self-sufficiency and self-reliance. And yet, Lord, we know at the heart of what it means to be a follower is complete surrender. That Jesus himself even said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. And so help us to be a people who deny ourselves and walk dependently to remind ourselves each and every day how much we need you. And Lord, that is not weakness on our part. That is simply strength that you offer because of your amazing grace, uh, because you are God who desires for us to walk in obedience to you. So help us to do that, Lord, for the glory of your great name in which we pray. Amen.